For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you this morning, and we are very glad that you have joined us in worship. My name is Dave Hahn, if you don't know me, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege, as always, to open God's word with and for you this morning. I think, uh, as I thought about it, I think it's becoming more clear uh, that our world is growing increasingly hostile to Christians and an overall Christian worldview. As parents, my wife Sheila and I have worked very hard to raise our son Seth to know and love Jesus Christ. Through our prayers on his behalf, through what we teach him and what we think and say and do, and most importantly, in helping to create a desire in him for what God says in his word. And we realize that the bulk of those efforts will be strongly challenged and pushed against in nearly every sphere of his life. So it is critical for we as parents then to remain vigilant in knowing what he's hearing, what he is seeing, and what it is that he is being taught. And then to correct what is erroneous just as much as we affirm what is true. The fact of the matter is though, Sheila and I need the exact same things that we are trying to provide for him. And so do all of you. Because we are all quick to forget what we have learned, to become lazy in our thinking and waffle in our convictions, to ebb towards thinking too much of ourselves and to adapt, embrace, and accept all the things that oppose God's word and his gospel. And so it's critical then for us to know who God is and what he has said as revealed in scripture. And to put ourselves into positions where we are constantly reminded of and encouraged by those truths. We need to be able to guard our minds and we need to guard our hearts from anyone and anything that leads to eternal destruction rather than eternal good. And it is with this heart, my friends, that Paul wrote letters to churches. That's why he wrote the letters that we find in scripture, including the letter to the church in Galatia. 
So it's been two weeks since we were last in the book of Galatians, so let me catch you up a little bit. In his letter to Galatians, most explicitly in chapter one, Paul is contending for the gospel and for his apostleship. Both of which, my friends, were revealed and given to him by Jesus Christ himself. He was writing to a church that had fallen under the influence of false teachers. Let's call them Jesus plus teachers. And in so doing, they were abandoning Jesus and the gospel that saved them, believing that it was not grace alone that saved them, but their good works too. So understand the deception in this. These false teachers, these Jesus plus teachers, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he died and rose again from the dead and that he was the savior of God. So most of us would call someone who believes and acknowledges all of that a Christian, right? So why then would Paul be writing the Galatian church a warning against such people? And it is because of this. These men also believed that who Jesus was and what he did was not sufficient to save anyone. And as such, because these men believed that they were proclaiming an impotent Christ and a powerless, man-centered gospel that had no power to rescue anyone from death and hell or to make one righteous. And in so doing, these teachers showed that they did not know Christ and they did not know his gospel at all. That's the reason for the warning. And so you and I need to beware of those who use the name of Jesus and teach certain biblical doctrines, but then add or take away from who Christ is and what he accomplished on our behalf. Beware. Friends, if what is being taught varies from the perfect word of God, which declares the exclusive and the sufficient work and person of Jesus Christ, it must be rejected outright. Two weeks ago, Jonathan reminded us of one very simple way to identify the true gospel. The gospel always points to Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and it never points to us. Friends, we are not the point of our salvation or the gospel. Jesus is. Jesus is. So if what you're hearing and being taught is that there is something yet to be done in order for God's salvation to be accomplished in you and that you are the one who needs to do it, don't just walk away. Run from that teaching and that teacher. Because that, my friends, is a false gospel. Similarly, if that is what you currently believe, if what you believe is that there is something yet to be done and you're the one that needs to accomplish it, repent, because that is also a false gospel. Friends, our very real hope here at Disciples Church is that you would leave this place each week deeply considering and rejoicing in who Christ is and the fullness of what he has done for you because of his great love for you. So much so that there would be very little opportunity for you to think about yourself. 
that you leave this place thinking about Christ, not about you. So this morning, we're going to look at the passage that Dean read for us. Let's begin again in, with verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You have heard of my former life is how Paul begins this section. Because Paul's conversion story was an incredibly remarkable one. In that, as Saul, he violently persecuted the very church that he was now a member of and minister to. Chasing down, imprisoning, and endorsing the deaths of Christians wherever he found them. That is Saul's former life. It is hard to overestimate the transformation that God did in Paul's life. And because of its dramatic nature, most Christians in this time and place would have been very familiar with his story. You can imagine how the story of Paul's transformation would have gotten around and how they had heard of his former life. And additionally, we can be assured that Paul often shared his own testimony to the degree that people hadn't heard it certainly as part of his evangelistic efforts and the proclamation of the extraordinary gospel and the God who saved him. And then we hear a version of that story in verse 23 of today's passage, which reads, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So most of us do have a former life to speak of. A life lived in rebellion to God through what we did, through what we said, and through what we thought. And to share our stories of coming to faith in Christ is an extremely powerful way of sharing the gospel with others. And it's powerful because no one can argue with nor reject something that has happened to you. So if you are looking for a non-threatening, simple way to share Christ with the people that you know and love who don't know and love Jesus themselves, start with your own story. And do not believe the lie that your story is boring and not worth telling because that is untrue. It is nonsense that any story in this room or any story in the sound of my voice is boring and unworthy of telling. Your story, just like Paul's story and every other Christian story has at the very least this in common. I was dead and God raised me to life again. The story of every Christian. Your story, if you know Christ, is a resurrection story. And what is more exciting than that? What is more exciting than the fact that you were once dead and you are alive? Every Christian can also tell this story. I was once an enemy of God, and thanks to Christ's death and resurrection, I am now a beloved child of God through faith in Christ. Is that a boring story? Is that unworthy of being told? 
Now the details of when or how God raised you as his child will vary, but every story of salvation is extraordinary and miraculous, and you never know when God might use your story to cause the lost to be found and the dead to be raised. So tell it. Tell it. Now in verse 14, Paul makes clear that as a religious Jew, he was crushing it. He's crushing it. Even more so than people that were older than him and had more time in it. Possessing great zeal for everything that his forefathers had believed in, lived for, and trusted in. In fact, in Philippians 3, we find Paul listing his Jewish credentials in very great detail. And he did so not to brag about them, but to say instead, in view of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, all of that other stuff is rubbish. In some translations, it says dung. So all his crushing it in view of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his Savior, was rubbish. It was for nothing. Here's why that is significant. If anyone, anyone had reason to boast in works-based righteousness, it was Paul. And yet, here he was, a minister of the gospel of grace. Not of works, but of grace. So, if works could save someone, would there have been a need for Paul to abandon his impressive credentials? If works could have saved someone, would there have been a need for Paul to abandon his works and call them rubbish and to abandon them for the gospel of grace that has been given in Christ? Of course not. But that Paul did abandon his works and his credentials and counted them as rubbish is evidence of the uselessness of our works and the magnificence of the gospel. If Paul was willing to abandon them, how useless must they be? Continuing in verses 15 through 17. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So take a look, if you will, at the pronouns and the activities behind the pronouns that we read in verses 13 and 14. I persecuted. I advanced, I was zealous. And then, compare them to the pronouns and the activities found in verses 15 and 16. God set me apart. God called me by his grace. God revealed his son to me. Pronoun shifts like that are a major indicator of one's salvation. Something significant has happened when I becomes he. When I becomes he. Something has happened. 
Because sin and our own self-salvation projects are filled with the pronouns I or me. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I go to church. I am a good person. I, I, I. But the gospel is all about God. It's all about he. I did these wrongs. Here's who I was. But in his grace, he, God, did this. And the false Jesus plus teachers were looking to turn he pronouns into I pronouns in the Galatian church. That's what they were looking to do. Proclaiming a counterfeit gospel. And that is the why behind this letter. So let's look a little bit at some of the he pronouns that we find in these passages, specifically verses 15 and 16. And let's first look at he set me apart before I was born. He set me apart. Now, of course, verses like these should immediately bring to mind for any of you who have spent time here at Disciples Church, the Genesis series that we were just in. That we were chosen and loved by God before we had done anything to cause him to choose or to not choose us. In other words, grace, unmerited favor, undeserved choosing. That's how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were chosen. It's how Paul was chosen, and it is how you and I were chosen. Grace, no merits of our own. And so no man gets the credit for Paul coming to Jesus. Not even, by the way, Paul himself. And while it did not please any man to bring Paul to Christ, it greatly pleased God. Isn't that what verses 15 and 16 say? That it pleased God to do the work that he did in Paul's life. And friends, because we know Paul more than we are familiar with Saul, who he was before, and because Paul kind of comes off as a super apostle who wrote half the New Testament, we kind of forget or we ignore much of his former life. We forget where he came from. But let it not be lost on us that before he was Paul, Saul of Tarsus was breathing murderous threats toward Christians. Not just people, but the church. And let it also not be lost on us that in no way was Paul looking for Christ. Paul was not traveling to Damascus to find Jesus. But Jesus was looking for him. Jesus was looking for him. Saul on the road to Damascus with persecution in his heart. Think of this. Met the risen Christ who knocked him to the ground with a blinding light, saying essentially to Paul, no more of this. No more of this. And he made Saul a son, no longer an enemy, and he made him an apostle. So who chose who here? Who chose who? Is Paul's life not evidence of one being set apart for God's purposes because of his grace? It makes no sense 
that Saul would become Paul apart from it. None. My friends, who among us, just to make it personal, who among us was looking for Christ when he found us? Even unto those who think that they were looking for him, Jesus would likely say unto you, well, why do you think you were looking for me? Why do you think you were looking for me then? Was it your idea? Or was it me who drew you? Were you looking for Jesus or was it Jesus who drew you unto himself? Which leads us then to another of the he pronouns in verse 16. Paul said that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. But I think that it's worth pointing out that in several other Bible translations, maybe the one that you're reading, if you're not reading the ESV, verse 16 is translated as revealed in me rather than revealed to me. And I think that that is interesting and I think that it's important because both transactions, revealed to and revealed in, are distinct, significant, and common occurrences for most every Christian. Here's what I mean. In verse 12 of chapter 1, we see clear evidence of Christ being revealed to Paul. But here, again, depending on your translation, we see Christ being revealed in Paul. So think of the distinction between those two words this way. God opens the eyes of our heart to see the reflection of Christ in his word, in his creation, and in his people. And then, upon the indwelling of Christ in us through his spirit, we become that same reflection unto others. So we see his reflection, and then having been indwelled by Christ, we become that reflection unto others. That's the difference between revealed to and revealed in. And an evidence of one having truly seen Christ is that others now see Christ in them. So let me make this personal for you and me. If Christ has been revealed to you, is he also revealing himself in you to others? If Christ has been revealed to you, is he also revealing himself in you unto others? And if not, why not? Paul goes on to say in verses 16 and 17 that he didn't need to confer with anyone about this gospel, including the apostles who walked, talked, and lived with Christ. Because Jesus revealed himself and his gospel to Paul directly, making him an apostle just as they were. So how, how did the original 12 disciples learn about the gospel? Was it through their rabbinic training? No, none of them had any religious training and yet it's who Jesus chose. And the way that they learned and the way that they heard of the gospel was directly from Jesus the same way that Paul heard and learned it, directly from Jesus. 
And then for how many years did the apostles spend with Jesus, learning and witnessing this gospel? Three years. The same amount of time that Paul spent learning it. I doubt that there is coincidence in any of that. But my friends, we do need to be careful in ascribing what happened to Paul unto ourselves or unto others. Because God did a unique work in Paul by revealing Christ and his gospel unto him personally. Rather than through those that Christ commissioned to proclaim the gospel prior to his ascension. Everyone else learned and heard the gospel through them. But Paul and the disciples learned it directly from God himself and then shared it with others. Friends, every revelation of God is a work of the Holy Spirit and it will be and is corroborated by God's word. So if what is revealed to you or someone else is opposed to the word of God given to the apostles and then given to us through them, that revelation is as false as the gospel that it proclaims. And that message and the messenger has to be rejected. If what has been revealed to you cannot be found and corroborated in the word of God, it has to be rejected. It has to be. Let's finish up in verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is another name for Peter. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after three years, that's a surprising declaration, isn't it? That doesn't seem like the way that it would go, that he would have this experience on the road to Damascus and then go away for three years. But ultimately we discover, as Paul lays it out here, that he didn't feel the need to meet with the apostles and the other leaders of the church, though he knew that there were. Nor, by the way, was he commanded by God or anyone else to appear before them. Instead, he lived anonymously and he waited some time to introduce himself to Peter and then ultimately to James, which is Jesus' brother. And when Paul did, he did so of his own accord. And I think that this part of Paul's life is often missed because we don't necessarily see that three-year gap in the book of Acts. You don't see that there's three years between those events. We see the stoning of Stephen in chapter seven over which we find Saul standing in approval. And then we see the persecution and the scattering of the church in chapter eight of Acts of which Saul was a significant part. Part of that persecution was from him. And then we ultimately witness Saul's conversion to Paul in chapter nine. But the scene cuts away from Paul and moves on to Peter for chapters 10, 11, and 12. 
until finally, in chapter 13, God sets apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which he called them, namely, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet, there is really no explanation as to what happened to Paul between his conversion in chapter 9 and then the Holy Spirit sending Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in chapter 13. We don't know what happened between there. We are only given insight into that period of time here in Galatians chapter 1. So for three years, God was busy transforming Saul of Tarsus into Paul, the apostle. For three years, God spoke directly and privately to Paul, transforming his heart and his mind by the Holy Spirit, replacing Paul's self-righteousness with grace-driven dependence upon God, putting Paul under grace rather than under the law, and setting Paul free from sin by making him instead a slave to God and his righteousness. That's what was going on for those three years. And in this beautiful period of time, God was teaching Paul about the very gospel that saved him and that would ultimately save others through his preaching, teaching, and writings, including many of us. And God did all of this, hear me, while Paul was in relative solitude. Not away from other believers necessarily, but away from those who might otherwise have been able to lead and teach him. So once again, my friends, here's the point in me saying that. We cannot underestimate nor overstate how powerfully God works when we spend time alone with him. Being filled by him and taught by him as we focus on hearing from not just talking to him. Now don't hear me saying that you should pull away from other believers. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying you should pull away from the sanctifying work that God does among and through his people, your brothers and sisters. Instead, Hear me encouraging you to spend a portion of your time each day being alone with God. Allowing him to speak to you and to teach you personally. The fact is, the more effective we are at being with God, the more powerful we are in doing for God. Our doing for God has to flow from our being with God because we cannot give away what we do not first possess. You cannot run on empty. It is in our being alone with God that we are equipped and we are filled and we are trained to do the good works he has planned in advance for us to do. And if you are trying to do for him without being with him, you should expect to burn out and find very little joy in it. Paul was who he was because 
of those three years alone with and being taught by God. And no doubt he spent time with him alone throughout the entirety of his ministry, but it began with those three years. And he is continuing to make the case in today's passage that the gospel he is preaching and the credentials that he has to do so were uniquely given to him by God and not by man. And here's why that matters so much. Kirk alluded to the same idea in his message last week, and it is this. Knowing that the message you're hearing and preaching comes from God and not from man makes the message infinitely more powerful. There's a sense in which if if man said it, who cares? But if God said it? See, the false teachers, the Jesus plus teachers learned from man and were taught through traditions of man, but not so with Paul and not so with the apostles. They, in contrast, were taught by God himself, made evident through the fact that they taught the exact same gospel though they had not met. And that, my friends, Paul would argue, is why the gospel that he preached was so much more powerful and so much more relevant than what the Jesus Plus teachers were teaching. Paul finishes this passage by reminding his Galatian readers that Peter, James, and the other apostles had heard of his dramatic conversion. And while some glorified God because of it, others were skeptical. I mean, it's understandable considering the violent nature of his former life. I bet you he had some skeptics. In fact, in Acts 9, we get a window into how the other apostles viewed Paul. Acts 9 verse 26 reads, And when he, that's Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. That's a pregnant word, isn't it? Attempted? And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Paul wasn't embraced as a disciple or as an apostle initially, but they all came around eventually, so much so that in Peter's second letter, he refers to Paul's writings as scripture. He refers to the writings of Paul as scripture, and that is no small endorsement because scripture are not the ideas of man. They are not the words of man. They are the very words of God that through the Holy Spirit were written down by man and then preserved perfectly down through all of generations. So calling something scripture is no small thing. And so ask yourself today, is the gospel that I have come to believe in from God by his spirit through his holy word or Has it come from within myself or from another? Is all of what I claim to believe corroborated and affirmed by the word of God or has it been confused and twisted in some way to make it more palatable to myself and to others? Friends, I think that we are stepping into a time of opposition and persecution for the gospel that we have in the West have not seen for some time, if, if at all. It's not new or unique to our brothers and sisters in many other parts of the world, but for we who are in the West, we're just not used to it. 
with our increasingly post-Christian culture, it is no longer cool nor broadly accepted to hold biblical ethics and ideas up as absolutely true for ourselves or for anyone else. And when faced with opposition or the threat of persecution for believing and preaching such things, you and I are going to do one of two things. Hold fast while risking all that we know, love, and hold dear. Or we will shut up and we will back down in hopes of preserving those same things. You're either going to hold fast and risk everything else or you're going to back down in hopes of preserving it. Understand, my friends, that on earth, Jesus had both followers and detractors from within the camps of those who claimed to know and love God, the religious leaders of the day, and from those who did not. So it wasn't just the irreligious that opposed Jesus. In fact, oftentimes those who opposed him the most were the religious. The people who should have welcomed him and should have known him. And among the followers and detractors, there were those who listened to him and worshipped him. And then there were those who rejected and plotted against him. There were those who followed and there were those who walked away. But you never find Jesus pulling his punches. Never. You never find him soft-selling what God told him to say or do. To try to keep a crowd, to try to gain more followers and friends, or to prevent people from getting offended or angry. You see, Jesus doesn't change. And his message doesn't change. It is only those who see and hear him who change. By drawing nearer to him or by pulling further away. By hardening their hearts or by finding them transformed. All of what Jesus had to say is from God. And the way in which he said it and the tone that he used was perfect because he is perfect. And yet, some walked away. Some called him a blasphemer and chased him out of town. And some, most incredibly the most religious among them, plotted to kill him. Even though his words were perfect, even though his tone was perfect. They walked away. They called him a blasphemer and they plotted to kill him. So why then would we be surprised when and if people do that to you and me? In fact, Jesus said that it would happen. My friends, we should anticipate and expect opposition when we contend for the gospel that we have been given. I know it's hard to hear, but it's true. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection on behalf of those who were once enemies but are now the chosen of God is the gospel. 
That's the gospel. And there is no better news. The gospel means good news, but it should mean the best news. We were commanded to live a perfectly obedient life, but only he lived it. You and I deserve to die for our sins, but he took it. And in our spiritual death, we desperately needed spiritual life, and he gave it. And what it means to be a Christian is to receive this good news by grace and through faith in the one who made it all possible. No other works will be accepted, so leave them there. This is the gospel that has been revealed in his perfect word, the gospel that we are commanded to live out and the gospel that we are called to proclaim and protect no matter what. So don't worry about being cool or relevant or inclusive. Don't even worry about being safe. Telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear don't do so, especially if doing so means being unfaithful to the gospel that Christ died and rose again to give to us. In other words, if holding fast to the word of God, the gospel of God, and the exclusivity of Christ means that you and I, like Paul, are discredited and rejected by man, let us be rejected. Let us be rejected. Because that is by far a better thing than being rejected by God who loves us, who chose us and is coming again to gather us unto himself. And my friends, Jesus Christ and his gospel alone has saved, is saving, and will continue to save until the day that he returns. Let's pray. Our great and glorious Father in heaven, how we thank and praise you for the perfect gift of your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for the good news, the best news that he has proclaimed to us and purchased for us with his blood and through his resurrection. We were too wicked, too foolish, and too dead to know that we needed the gospel and too proud to receive it. But you, God, raised us giving us a new heart and sonship in his name, enabling us to gladly live according to the gospel and proclaim it in word and deed. Help us to do just that through abiding in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom to accept no other gospel, no other savior, and no other word other than those that you have given. Would you give us boldness and courage to live in the good of it and to teach it and proclaim it unto those who need to be reminded of it or to hear it for the first time? Lord, even if doing so were to cost us our very lives, remind us that whatever we fear losing is nothing, it's rubbish compared to what we stand to gain in contending for our Lord and his word. Father, make us winsome, but not at the expense of truth. Make us truthful, but not at the expense of the grace that saves. For such a time as this, you have put us into this time and place, God. Help us to be faithful in it. For Jesus' sake and his glory we ask and pray. Amen.